scripture reading this morning will be taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. In the Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 999. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the, of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to be a part of of the expansion, and let's be sure that we continue to pray about that. It's wonderful to always have the opportunity to be generous in, in our work with God. That's really all that life is about, our work with God. Also, keep in mind, as we strive to constantly lean upon God and draw from Him in every way, uh, we want to place an emphasis on prayer as we think about thanksgiving for this year that God has blessed us in so many ways, and as we think about planning for 2009, as we think about every member, and also as we think about every request. We will this year be doing prayer day on Sunday, a little bit different from the past when we've done it on Saturday, and hopefully that that would be uh, a good change and maybe a convenient change for you, but, but definitely it's something that even if it's slightly inconvenient, that's something worth making time for. If you do have prayer requests that you would like for us to be praying for, be sure and pick up the yellow forms there in the foyer and submit those in the prayer box, that uh, prayer request box that is on the Welcome Center. Can you imagine flying blind? That's exactly what happened to Jim Neal this past week. He's a London uh, reporter reported about this British pilot in his Cessna. He was at 5,500 feet and he had a stroke. And part of the symptoms of the stroke was the loss of sight. In terror, he radioed. And, and those that heard his radio uh, message said that you could hear the terror in his voice. He said, I'm in an emergency. I can't see. I need to land as soon as possible. There was a man named Paul Gerard that had just finished up some of his military training. He was in flight. He was of the Royal Air Force. He came flying to his wing and began radio dialogue with him. From time to time, he would ask him, can you see now? And his answer was always apologetic. I'm sorry, I can't see anything. I can't even see the dials in front of me. He would tell him, oh, just a bit to the left. Uh, slow down a bit, a bit to the right, and guided him all the way into the airfield. As you know, one of the most difficult things to do in flying is to land the plane. It was that difficult. You see, as he began t telling him exactly how to touch down the first time, he bounced back into the air. He helped him touch down a second time. He bounced into the air again. And finally, the third time, Jim and Paul were able to keep that little Cessna on the ground from his hospital room. Jim said, you know, it just seems like something that ought to be in action-packed films, not in real life. 
Can you imagine flying blind? As we think about that, I think about the scientific and maybe even academic world that is about us that has chosen to not believe in God. And because they take that out, because they take God out, there is a blindness. There is a darkness that they can't answer the questions. They are choosing to fly blind. Even though that's very disappointing, that really should not probably disappoint us as much as talking to fellow Christians. And when they're asked to discuss whether or not there is a God, but not use the Bible, how many times have we heard our brothers and sisters in Christ say, well, you're just going to have to have blind faith. No wonder atheists seem to have a fuel behind them. Do you really believe that's intelligent? Is it intelligent to tell someone, I give my life to something, but I have to admit to you, I'm blind in it. I'm just walking around blindly. It's called faith. Is that really what God would have us to do? Or does God expect us to have a faith that is based on evidence? Not the absence of things, but the evidence of things, even though they may not be seen. Friends, our faith should never be blind. And so as we think about this, I want you to look back again to that text that's been capably read for us in Romans, the first chapter. And I'd like for you to notice verse 20 to see what would Paul, writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so this is a message from God, what is it that God wants us to understand? Is God satisfied with saying, walk around blindly, or will you notice the words clearly seen as we look back to verse 20 again, for he says, for since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, wait a minute. When did these invisible attributes become clear to you and me? He says, if you look back at the story of creation, the fact of creation, you're going to see God. Now, let's read on. He he really sandwiches this with emphasis. He says it before, then he says it's clearly seen, and then he says it again after. Notice right after we read those words, clearly seen, how? Being understood by the things which are made. He says, look at the creation of the world. You can clearly see the invisible attributes of God. Look at the things that have been made by God. You can clearly see God. Well, what is it that we can clearly see? Yes, we can clearly see God, but did you notice there's a second thing? He also said we can see even His eternal power and the Godhead. Paul writes and says... We can look at creation and we can know. We can clearly see there's a God. We can clearly see that that God has eternal power. If I ask you Genesis 1, what is it about? Perhaps all of us would say Genesis 1 is a story about creation. If you would be flipping there for just a moment, I'd like for for you to think also that there's probably something a lot deeper than just an interesting story about creation. Genesis 1 is a story about God. Genesis 2 is a story about mankind. Genesis 3 is a story about mankind and their struggle with the enemy, Satan. Now, as we say that, what's our grounds to say it? I'm going to read just the first five verses of Genesis 1, and I'm going to place an emphasis on a word, and I want you to just notice how oftentimes God chose to be emphasized in this writing. In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light, that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night so the evening and the morning were the first day. This story of creation goes through the second chapter, third verse. 35 times in 34 verses to tell the story of creation, God is mentioned by name. He chose not to use pronouns. He chose to place the emphasis on the fact that I am the creator. Friends, if we lose sight of God being the creator, we do not have the Almighty as our God. Why is it so important for us to address evolution? Because when we lose sight of God being the creator, we do not have the almighty God as our God. There's quite an attack right now in the sharing the ancient words, our fall focus. Andrew has has been laying out a wonderful study for us. And in our study guides, you have probably seen this quote by Christopher Hitchens. He's one of his best, a best-selling book recently, God is Not Great. You see, now it's not only a, 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 a belief that there is no God, but now there is somewhat an attack against those that are religious and believe it. This quote out of his book on page 10 and 11, religion is man-made, he says. Even the men who made it cannot agree on what their prophets or redeemers actually said or did. The person who is certain and who claims divine warrant for his certainty belongs to the infancy of our species. See the attack there. Now this morning, I want us to look at some things that would definitely fall under the, the field of science. But as we do this, I want you to understand that's not attack on science. Science is a very wonderful thing. It's a very positive thing. As a matter of fact, many scientists who were atheists because they studied in depth with an open mind science, it opened their eyes to the existence of God. For example, a wonderful example is Francis S. Collins. I'm not suggesting to you that he is where we are in our belief system, but I am saying to you that this is a man that in graduate school was very open with the fact that he was an atheist. But yet in 2007, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was on a leadership team that did and made some of the greatest discoveries of DNA to our day. Now, what does that mean? There are many that would say his discoveries in, in, in DNA and, and mapping the DNA structure, finding out what is involved and what that entails and what it accomplishes, the purpose of DNA, many say that his studies will do more for our society than landing a man on the moon. Others argue that what he has done is not only the greatest medical achievement, but some say it's greater than all other medical achievements combined. As he began to look deeply into DNA and unfold all of the wonderful aspects and the way that it was designed, after years and years and years, he finally came to the conclusion evolution could not explain DNA. And now he has a book that has come out about his belief in the Almighty God. Science, it's wonderful. Science is the system of 
or a method of study. Science is to collect data, to set up hypotheses, to test that hypothesis, and then to evaluate the data again, and, and then to, to set that data up again, and to test it again, and to evaluate. And when one keeps an open mind and is willing to look at that, it's wonderful. As a matter of fact, science has touched every one of our lives almost and literally every minute of our life. When you crank your car this morning, it's because of science that helps us enjoy that invention. When you looked at the nutritious guide on the back of your cereal this morning, you can thank science for that. The clothes that you're wearing, the fabric, everything that we touch, everything about our medicine, you name it, and science is involved. So this morning, are we trying to put some kind of negative slant on science? Absolutely not. Well, what are we talking about then? We're talking about those that says science can only contain a study of things that are physical. If anything is supernatural, it cannot be brought into the realm of science. That is what creates theories like evolution that create a blackness or a blindness that creates so many questions that has absolutely no answer. As we think about this, I'd like for you to think again of Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, one of the great problems in evolution is that it cannot explain cause and effect. You know, for every effect, there has to be a cause that places it into motion. For example, right now, we see a ball that we can see with our, with our naked eye. We cannot see any movement to that ball. Now, of course, if we placed it under... Uh, and, and was magnified that ball many, many times, we would eventually see movement because everything in our universe is in movement, which again goes back to even greater demand of cause and effect. Right now, if we see that that ball is still, and we all could agree upon that, and then I take and... Uh, I'm going, Van, can you catch... No, just kidding. I'm not going to do that. All right. Um, now... I tell you what I'll do. I'll just put this ball in mo- movement just for a few minutes, okay? I mean, a few seconds. All right. Now, you see that ball? That's pretty good, wasn't it? You thought it was going to go off the end. All right. Now, notice, we could talk about, did the ball move? Well, we, we could have somebody here that says, no, the ball never moved. Others would say, wait a minute. We know for many reasons it moved. We saw it move. We know that it was here and now it's there. We know that the ball moved. Okay, well, what was the cause of that effect? Oh, nothing. That ball just is a rolling ball. What? There's no cause to the effect? No, that's just what balls do. No. You see, in the scientific community, we would never, never accept that. In the scientific community, there has to be a cause for every effect. And so we clearly understand from a scientific standpoint that that ball, the effect of its movement was because of the the kick from my foot. Now, as we think about that, you're looking on the screen here of just two or three uh, things that remind us on a daily basis, and we literally could talk about hundreds and thousands of these, but when we look about the movements or the orbits of the planets... They are moving, yes or no. Science says yes. It's proven they're moving. Okay, so if they're moving, who caused that effect? Right now, if I ask you to reach over and shove the person next to you, 
you probably can move the person next to you. Now, what if I ask you to go over and I want you to shove this wall? You cannot be an effective cause to move that wall. Not your bare hands. So when we're talking about cause and effect, and we're talking about who places planets in motion, there has to be a cause great enough to place planets in motion. When we think about something where we look maybe and take things for granted, a simple rainfall, do you realize even water is in a cycle? Water is continually in motion. Who, what was the cause that's great enough to set that in motion? When we look at the atoms that make up cells, and and when we do this, and and for time's sake, I'm, I'm just going to touch on this real briefly. But you know, and I hesitate to even say this, but I'll just say it kind of for emphasis sake, okay? If we go back to Darwin's day, you know, all he could see was a little cell and it was like a, a little blob. And so you can have at least a little pity on the guy that all he could see was a little blob. And you say, okay, so he made really some really foul theories. But what about scientists today? when we can see so deeply into a cell that we realize there is is literally more than encyclopedias of knowledge that take place within one cell. The intricate design of one cell. Darwin had no idea that it was that intricate. A cell. You want to look around the inside? Shrink yourself one millionth to the size you are. And when you get in there, you're going to find little rooms and compartments. You're going to see those molecules. And those molecules, you're going to notice that those little rooms are built up of little building blocks. And those little building blocks are the molecules. Now, if you shrink yourself about a thousandth of a millionth again... You can go inside those molecules and you can see atoms. And those atoms are real fuzzy because they're moving around. It's like a fuzzy little football just flying around. And if you can decrease your size again about a tenth of a trillionth to your normal size, inside the atom you'll see electrons. If you move to the nucleus of that, you can find protons and neutrons, and they are linked together like little school children, holding hands, running around chasing, but we can't tell what they're chasing. And if you can go much, much smaller than that, you can find quarks. They too are moving, and we don't yet know everything about them because we have a hard time seeing them, but there's probably something inside them. Friends, we live in a world that is in motion. And evolution says we don't have any idea the cause that set this universe in motion. Some Evolutionists try to say that there was a bang from something the size of a tangerine. But you ask them where that came from, we don't know. We just have to assume that there was no cause to the creation, no creator to create that tangerine. And we could go on and on about how ridiculous and how flawed it is, the fact that we would have movement but no cause. 
but let's think for just a moment about design. Look with me, if you will, in your Bible. Let's go to Psalm 19. Look at Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, you'll notice if you have a Bible that's broken up in paragraphs, first six verses will be a paragraph together, and then 7 through 14 will be a par- another paragraph. And Spurgeon says that we read about the God of the world, and, and in that, he's not talking about Satan, he's talking about the God that created the world. He says the first six verses, we read about the God of the world, and in the next verses, we read about the God of the Word. And you see, until we understand that God is the creator, we will not respect the word of God. And so here in Psalm 19, it's really a powerful verse. It's it's always been for any generation, but especially for us as we're surrounded by people that they want to believe that, that there ought to be some code of ethics to live by, but yet they do not want to listen to the God who is the creator who gave not only our life, but gave us the way to live. Here's the way as we begin reading here. Uh, Let's read a few verses. Let's read the first five verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. How are we going to know there's a designer? Psalmist says, listen. Listen to what the heavens say. The heavens clearly state. When we think about the rotation of the planets, the orbits of the planets, they are screaming the fact that someone has set them in motion. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. See? Look at the sunrise. Look at the sunset. Look at daytime. Look at nighttime. Look at the change of the seasons. They all are saying there is a much higher power. There is an almighty. Look at three. There is no speech nor language where this voice is not heard. It doesn't matter if you're in Asia. You can understand this. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa, if you're in North America or South America. It doesn't matter where you are. You can understand the language of creation. Creation demands a creator. Their line has gone out. In other words, their message, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of the chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. What is David saying here? He's saying the same thing that Paul was saying. When we see creation, we clearly see God, the invisible attributes of God. Isn't it interesting that in science, you can take an artificial tree, Christmas tree, little silk plant, and you go to any science department and you try to say that there was no designer, you'll be laughed out of that science department. We know that every artificial tree had a designer. But yet you go in many of those same science departments and you say that this little plant here had a designer, and you'll be laughed out because now you believe intelligent design. You see, you would be appreciated there if you would say it just evolved. You know, it's, it's like a dump truck that was hauling junk metal, and it had a collision with another vehicle, and a Cadillac fell out of the back. Which one takes the most faith? Which one takes the most intelligence? Friends, we're not talking about something here that just sounds good for a sermon. We're talking about something that's biblical. But let me tell you something and emphasize something that is very important for you and I to understand. We're talking about something 
that atheists wrestle with on a regular basis and they have never been able to give substantial answers. They don't have an answer for cause and effect. They don't have an answer for design where science demands the designer in everything except creation. And now we're going to walk in blindness and say some way it just evolved. As we flip through these next slides, think about the idea of the eye. Think about the, the idea that, that if I held up before you a model of an eye, you would see the producer, the, the product name. You would know that there's someone that works there that designed that eye. We even call glasses sometime, if they're a particular brand, we call them designer glasses. But yet, in many areas where people want to take, scientists want to take anything supernatural out, what they'll do is look at those models and say that they have a designer. They'll look at the glasses and say they have a designer, but they'll look at the human eye and they'll say, it just evolved. And if we haven't stopped and studied the eye, perhaps we can't fully appreciate how detailed the eye is. And so I'm just going to give you one sentence out of Darwin's book. It's The Origin of Species, and he, this is the title, Difficulties with the Theory. Here's what he says. To suppose that the eye, with so many parts all working together, could have formed by the natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Atheists, they struggle to try to describe how the very complex things such as DNA, the eye, and on and on with creation, how could all of this just evolve? And so they do studies of the probability. And I'm not going to take the time right now to give you the probability. But the probability of it happening would be like one in trillions of years. They do studies like if you blindfolded someone and, and, and you, how long would it take them if they moved the Rubik's Cube one movement every second? How long would it take them just to accidentally work the Rubik's Cube? And it would take trillions of years to accidentally do that. And that's just working a cube that's already in existence. When we think about a cell that has 200,000 molecules in it, and we think about all of them have to line up perfectly, what's the odds of 200,000 coming together just at the right time just to create one cell? There's a designer. That's how it all works out. When we look at an artificial limb, we know that it has a designer, but isn't it interesting that sometime in science there are those that would argue that the real limb has no designer at all. And we'll close this morning with another powerful argument. It's a moral law. Look with me, if you will, to Romans, the, the second chapter. In Romans, the second chapter, we're going to look at verse 14 and 15. He's talking to the Jews here, trying to help them realize that they are accountable to God, the law that he's given them. But then he also makes mention to the Gentiles, and he reveals to us something about our heart. In Romans, the first chapter, notice what he says in 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do... This is Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now notice this. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing are also excusing them. 
Evolution has no answer for the conscience, for a moral standard. Evolution does not know what to do with the idea that every civilization, every human being that's ever lived has had some kind of understanding of right and wrong. Now, friends, not every civilization has had the same moral compass. Not every individual has had the same moral compass. But everybody has some kind of understanding that there's a right and there's a wrong. Now, don't take that for granted. Animals do not have that. When, when God said in Genesis 1, I'm going to make man after my own image, a part of the way that God, a moral God, made us was to be moral people. And so when we consider the understanding of right and wrong, do you realize your dog doesn't have that? You know, if your dog chewed up your favorite pair of shoes, he may be conditioned that when he sees you, he crouches down, and he may even put on those puppy dog eyes, of course, if you have a cat, they wouldn't care at all. But, but you know what's not going to happen? You're not going to come in at, at 1130 at night and see your dog lying awake worried about it. They don't have a conscience. They don't have an understanding of right and wrong naturally. The only understanding they would have would be based upon condition. And that becomes very powerful. When we look to things such as the Holocaust and the six million Jews that their lives were taken, that is very, very prominent in the Warren and Flu debate. And I want to read to you, and these aren't exact quotes, but the idea of some things that were said. Both of these two gentlemen, and, and at that time in his life, uh, Flew was a prominent atheist and, and from Britain. And, and so both of them served in World War II allies against Germany. And Warren was a preacher for the church. And so he brought up the fact that the, the murder of these millions of Jews, and he asked the simple question, was it evil? And Flew said, yes, it was a universal moral law which Germany violated. And so putting Germany on trial was justifiable, he said. And Warren said, wait a minute. You've said all we are is a collection of molecules. We're no different from rocks, from donkeys, from planets, from potatoes. We're just a collection of molecules. So what makes it wrong? And this Oxford graduate that was considered the prominent atheist of his day, said, we don't know. It was just wrong. Neuroscience cannot explain why the human brain has a conscience and animals don't. Evolution can't explain why we have a consciousness of right and wrong. In mere Christianity, one of C.S. Lewis's strong arguments for the existence of God is that every civilization has always argued. Think of the word argue. Argue means that one is trying to prove another wrong. Hey, that's my seat. Don't take that. Would you want me to do that to you? Come on, let's do the right thing. What makes us as a society do that? Have you noticed that generally we might argue about what is right and wrong, but we never argue about the standard 
There is a right or wrong. We all agree upon the fact that there is a right or wrong. Why? Who taught us that? It's inborn. It's embedded in our heart. We are moral creatures because God, a moral God, planted within us a moral compass that says there is a right and there is a wrong. And thank God that Martin Luther King Jr., that was one of the only things that he could hold to and that he could argue. And I want to read to you a line out of his his letter from the Birmingham jail. Eight white ministers actually sent him a letter while he was in jail and said, listen, you have the right interest, but your tactics are wrong. And this is a a man that was leading a just cause. And this was a man who the courts had let him down and the cause that he represented down over and over and over. And he writes this letter and he says, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. How does one determine whether a, a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made law that squares with the moral law or with the law of God. Unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral laws. You hear his argument? He writes and says, I can't depend upon the man-made laws in America. But I can make a plea to Americans based upon what is morally right. What God has placed within every one of us. There are some things that are right. There are some things that are wrong. And all of the advancements that we enjoy today as a civilization through the civil rights, they are because of the argument that is based. Morality that's given from God. You say Germany ought to have been tried. Tried by what law? They were tried. War crimes. Tried by the Germany law? They didn't disobey Germany law. Tried by the U.S. law. They're not U.S. citizens. What were they tried by? Laws of humanity. Where did we get that? Even today, the United Kingdom will have, will have courts and they will try individuals, war crimes, based on the law of humanity. What is that? That is the law that is embedded in each one of us because we have a creator. This morning, I want to ask you, please not take for granted what we studied this morning. There's probably everyone here, probably, that believes in the Almighty God. If not, we hope that this helped in some way, but all of us will talk with individuals that do not believe in the Almighty God. We've covered three things this morning that atheists cannot answer. Friends, I don't say that out of arrogance. I say that out of the fact we've got the truth right here and they cannot be answered. Evolution cannot explain. But I want to tell you what is the best news about the proof of God. As we extend this invitation, the best news of the proof of God is that God can do wonderful things with lives. God can do things with our lives that we can't do with it and nobody else can do with our life. And this morning, if you're not living for the Almighty God, wholly submitting your life to Him, why not do that? 
And why not speak highly of God and of His ways as you go throughout this week and talk about a powerful God and the powerful impact that He's made in your life. If you've never been baptized into Christ or if you have and you need to be restored, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we